David Phelps is coming off Tommy John surgery. No problem. I always joke the first two pro clients I had uh, reached the big leagues and it's been downhill since then. Did both guys and stuff have a capital in that sentence? No, just stuff. And welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, episode number 127. We're just limbering up to play all around the diamond in honor of a certain Team Canada shortstop. I'm your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I'm joined by Joshua Housem. Josh, how's it going? Good, you? Uh, good. We have a, a couple of things to discuss because Russell Martin has waved goodbye to the Rogers Center, or the Sky Dome, depending on what you prefer, and uh, is back to where it all started for him in Los Angeles, so we're going to have a little look back at his career in Toronto. Uh, David Phelps is now a Toronto Blue Jay, and he has a contract loaded with incentive clauses that we're still trying to sort out. Uh, Dalton Pompey talked to Sportsnet about how he's looking at next year, and, and we're kind of wondering about uh, what next year might hold for him. Uh, we might talk a little bit about organizational culture. We have an interview with uh, Kyle Bodie of Driveline Basis, uh, because some of his employees are now Blue Jay employees. And then uh, we're going to take your questions, of which you have many about Bryce Harper, I believe, is primarily what you have questions about. Uh, and then we're going to look at the depth chart in that context. And uh, I think... I think that about uh, sums up what we're what we're looking at this week. Fair? Yeah, sounds about right. All right. So Russell Martin uh, is is no longer a Blue Jay, but certainly uh, he left his mark on Toronto. And I believe you have given me an idea uh, that I should play something in honor of Russell. So would you like me to do that now, just so we can remember yes, this please. moment? All right. Here we go. Russell, 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 Russell. Look at me. Wow. That was a big moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think we, we, it, it, we haven't had a lot of big moments in the last two years. So that's kind of a bit of a time warp, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, jumping back to 2015, which is, yeah, that's a while. When the Blue Jays were relevant and Russell Martin was an offensive force for the Toronto Blue Jays, which is something else that seems like a bit of a time warp. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. That was walking off the Yankees. No, actually, no? it wasn't. I, it's it funny that that moment like has it. a bit of a interesting connotation to it. People sort of talk about it as the moment that sealed the division for the Jays, and it kind of did. What's weird is the Jays were actually already winning this game one to nothing, but he just put it out of reach. Hmm. Yeah, he, uh, he crushed it. I think it was, but they were up, and then uh, he hit the three-run bomb off of. Andrew Bailey. Where is Andrew Bailey right now? He's retired. But uh, <laughs> that was actually the second home run that he hit off Bailey that year, which is kind of interesting. But it was that, – that was the, the most exciting time ever to be a Blue Jays fan. And I don't think anyone would argue about that. Oh, sorry. Since 1993, there the most are. exciting time to be a Blue Jays fan. <laughs> Props to the actual World Series winning teams, absolutely. But I think, I think really in – the memory of most people listening to this podcast, um, 
yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about the most exciting time that they can, they can really identify with. And Russell Martin is, is a big part of that 2015-2016 team, uh, both in the way he handled the pitching staff uh, defensively. Uh, his ability at the time to throw out runners was, was very, very good. Uh, so he was, he was a two-way player, and he was Canadian. And significantly, uh, he was worth the money that they were paying him, which was literally the biggest contract the Blue Jays have ever handed out. Yeah, I mean, there's no... I don't think there's a way to overstate the impact that he had on that team. You mentioned the throwing runners out. He led the league in caught stealing percentage at 44% his first year with the team. Somehow it went to 15 the next year. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, it, and it was just a massive upgrade at catcher. Something, I mean, you know, Deion Navarro was there before and he had his pluses when it came to working with pitchers, but just wasn't in the same league defensively as Russell Martin was. Absolutely. And and it wasn't in the same league offensively as Russell Martin. I, I think when the, when the Ju- Blue Jays went for that fifth year on, on the contract for Martin, uh, I mean, there was a hope that he could be the player with the 400 OBP that he was the, the previous year. But but really, what what you were focused on, I think, was, are there going to be two really good, solid years, maybe three at the beginning of this contract? And well, those last two years, that's the price you pay for bringing on board a free agent. Right. I mean, if, if, just talking about this now, is there a a situation where you would say, you know what, I wish the Blue Jays didn't sign him to that contract, even though you know, last year for $20 million and this coming year? Like, no, right? No, because you, you needed a guy with the kind of impact that Russell Martin had in the first two years. He... He was in that window. I mean, we hoped that the window was going to be longer for everybody, right? But he was in the window that he needed to be, and he was productive in that window. That's exactly why you go out and sign a free agent. You you do not have any illusions, I don't think, signing a guy to a five, six, seven-year contract in baseball, expecting him to be productive in year six or seven. That's uh, That's just the way things are supposed to work. So you really hope that, you know, there isn't a big injury in year one, and it kind of throws a wrench in the whole thing. And Russell Martin, to his credit, uh, did exactly what what you needed from him with the right team at the right time. So I I will look back fondly on on his time, regardless of the back ended uh, back loaded part of the contract that that wasn't a great value. Yeah, I mean, and even just when we're talking about that, this past season was just not good for him. I mean, he's, he hit one ninety four. He hit a three thirty eight on base percentage, which was actually the second highest he's had as a Blue Jay, but. You know, the power went away because he wasn't making contact. But even the year before that, you know, you're 343 on base and a 388 slugging, which for a catcher is excellent. Yeah, and I think we because our expectations were really high in terms of a Russell Martin complete player, I think maybe we, we got a little down on that. Also, he was streaky player, if I remember rightly. It took him a long time to get his feet under him in that 2017 season. Uh, and then, and, sorry, ahead. it's just funny. Speaking of that, Russell Martin started his Blue Jays career by going one for 24. <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah, I do, actually. I remember thinking, man, uh, just please impress us eventually, like sooner rather than later. This was on a team that was consistently 500, despite every other metric indicating that they shouldn't be. And then you've got this <laughs> this month worth of, of catcher who should be a whole lot better than he is. I think there was a lot of that first four months of 2015 was this should be do going a whole lot better than it is and he was like he was the epitome of that especially at the beginning yeah i mean he was hitting in the 100s until may 
which, you know, not when they signed up for a guy who had hit 290 the year before with a 400 on base percentage or whatever it was. But, you know, in, in the at the end of the year, it all worked out. So, again, we don't really think about that in, as, as a problem. No, and, and as you just illustrated, he had a huge hit in, like, in, in the most important regular season series for the Jays, you know, in 20 years at that point. And, you know, and his work of guiding the pitching staff and his work on framing pitches was just so key, I think, especially for – not, you know, not just Stroman when he came back, but for Osuna and Sanchez coming out of the bullpen as really young pitchers as well. I think uh, just as an odd aside is, is there is a chance in another, another universe, another timeline um, that we would remember Russell Martin as the guy who allowed the winning run to score because he hit someone's <laughs> bat, throwing the ball back to the pitcher. And eliminated the Jays from the first postseason series in twenty some odd years. Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> thank God, thank God we have a bat flip to remember instead. Um, yeah, so I mean, Russell Martin was always in the thick of it, wasn't he? I mean, he sure uh, was. He's the guy who hit the ground ball that turned into the error where Donaldson scored at Illinois, Texas, the year after. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of Russell Martin uh, intense moments in Blue Jays uh, lore, right? Even though he might not be the guy hitting the uh, the home run every time, he might not be earning the MVP award. He certainly had a tremendous influence on on the team and the culture of the team. Um, I think in in that period of time. So I, it's it's also nice that he's Canadian. That when when he went to Montreal it felt like a homecoming for him. So there was some other connection to fans. He wasn't just some other guy who was, you know, sort of some kind of random face um, until a whole bunch of time went by. He had some real connections to the team and, and to the country. Um, I think that made it easier to welcome him to the team. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I know this can be weird with these trips to Montreal now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no Michael Saunders. There's uh, there's no Russell Martin, um, no Brett Laurie. No. <laughs> who, who is it? Is there a Canadian on the team at the moment? I'm forgetting. Well, Dalton Pompey is technically on the 40 man roster, and we'll get to him a bit more later. But yes, indeed. But there's there's no uh, no opening day lineup potentially guy who's Canadian. That's been feels like it's been a while since that's been the case. Well, it's because Russell Martin's been here for five years. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. It was. It started to seem like, oh, how many, how many good Canadians can they can they gather up? But now that's that's faded a little bit. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Well, do you want to talk about the fact that that's still the biggest contract that the Blue Jays have ever handed out? As you pointed to me off, uh, pointed out to me off air. Also, Vlad Junior's Canadian, so yeah. It's... Yeah, I I think uh, on a technicality, but it's a wonderful technicality. I was born in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, but it, sorry, I don't know this for a fact. Is his mother actually a Canadian citizen, or is he just is he an anchor baby? <laughs> uh, possibly. <laughs> I don't know the exact details of Vlad Junior's family history. I just I know but, Vlad Senior never got Canadian citizenship. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, we can talk about the contract. We should also talk about what they got for him. Oh yeah, yeah, there was a return. Uh, obviously, they're paying some of that freight uh, to L.A which was a given. Um, basically, the Blue Jays have very clearly been clearing the decks of all older players. So goodbye, Russell. Sorry about that. What do we know about who, uh, who they got in return? Well, so they got, they traded for a middle infielder named Ronnie Brito, who's, you know, he's younger. He's just 19 years old. You know, he turns 20 in March. And they traded for a 
pitcher named Andrew Sopko, who turns 25 in the middle of next season. Uh, very different returns between those two. Sopko is, he's basically from every scout you hear talk about him. It's like, this is a guy who is your depth starter, spot starter when you need, you know, in AAA, which every team needs those guys. And the Jays, you know, need them more than most people last year. Like Brandon Compton was making starts. Um, and, but Brito is the opposite. He's the guy with the big upside and the big downside. The lottery ticket, so to speak. Yeah. So he was, uh, he, the year the Jays signed Vlad Jr. Actually for 3.9 million or 3.96 or whatever it was, Brito got $2 million from the Dodgers. So it wasn't, you know, he was a, a guy, I love, I love when I say that. And it's like everybody's a guy. But <laughs> capital G. <laughs> yes, capital G-U-Y. Uh, <laughs> but so he, he was in the Dominican Summer League for his first year, and then he broke his femur, which, you know, that's hugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, it's a really hard bone to break because it's enormous. But... <laughs> So he missed almost a full season. And so last year he was a 19 year old in rookie ball, which is not really what you want to be seeing out of, you know, a guy who you gave $2 million to, but he did really well. So he's got a lot of swing and miss in his game, but also he has power and, and depending on who you hear, he can play the middle infield really well. So I think this year will tell us a lot more about him than anything he's done in the past. Having been injured and having only been in short season ball, I, I assume that it's tough to come up with a consensus on him at the moment. Yeah, and, and part of the problem with that too, and uh, I think it was Kylie McDaniel who pointed this out, he's changed his swing like six or seven times. <laughs> he's 19. <laughs> and he's only been playing pro ball for a year and a half. So I don't really understand that, but uh, I don't know. I, I think we'll really see once the Jays get him in their system and start working with him. All right. We're probably going to talk at, at great length about over this offseason about contracts and sizes of thereof and lack of size of thereof um, because we all know where that's leading in baseball. But Russell Martin uh, was literally a big free agent get where the Blue Jays actually outspent other teams to get him. Uh, that's kind of a watershed moment in, in a different way than some of the other things we've been talking about with Russell. Yeah, I mean, the Jays have done that in the past and it always seems to be the same way too. You know, like think of BJ Ryan, AJ Burnett. It's like going that extra year on the contract. That's all we got. Sometimes you got, sometimes you got to do that, right? If you, this is the guy you want, then uh, who cares what happens in 2020 or 2019 or whatever if you're trying to win in 2015? Yeah. And we'll find out more about that when you start asking questions about Bryce Harper. So, <laughs> which you did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the other signing uh, the guy coming in, not the guy going out. David Phelps is uh, tell us about David Phelps. What do we need to know? So like uh, it seems to be a trend for the Blue Jays, their acquisitions. David Phelps is coming off Tommy John surgery. No problem. <laughs> yeah. He had Tommy John surgery last March. So there's a chance he might not be ready for the opening day roster. But unlike, say, Julian Merriweather, David Phelps has been really good in the minors or in the majors recently. Uh, he was a mediocre starter, came up with the Yankees, went to the Marlins. But then when he got shifted to the pen, he was, you know, he was lights out. His first year in the bullpen with Miami at a 2-2-8 ERA in you know, 86 innings with 114 strikeouts. Next year, he had 62 strikeouts in 55. But this is a guy that if he's healthy, 
is a power arm. He can get up to the nine to about ninety seven in the bullpen, or he averages around that 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 velocity, I should say, when he doesn't throw as hard as the starter. And has the ability to go multiple innings, which if they're trying to use an opener strategy or anything like that, he could be really useful. So super awesome. We're just hoping he's like the 75% of uh, Tommy John surgery recipients, not the 25% who have all kinds of problems trying to get back. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that the, people tend to think of Tommy John. I think we've talked about this before. Like, But they tend to think of Tommy John as... Oh, it's like you're out of year and you come back and you're just as good. And that's not really the case. A long time ago on this podcast, probably back when we were called the Blue Jays Plus podcast, we had Stefania Bell on and we talked about this very thing. It's not, you know, it's not a magic cure. And guys, some guys don't come back right from it. But, you know, from all accounts, his rehab is going well. So that's encouraging, at least. Yeah. All right, so that remains to be seen. But what also remains to be seen is uh, if it does go well for David, uh, his contract is an an escalating nightmare of confusing clauses. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the actual value of the contract is one year, two point five million, with a one million club option for two thousand twenty. That that's I mean that's peanuts. Except <laughs> in twenty nineteen. He can get to various performance bonuses based on games pitched. $25 million for each for the first 25, 30, 35. I, I don't think you mean $25 million. $2.25 million. Thank yep. you. <laughs> and then $0.35 million for each of 40, 45, 50, 55, and 70 games pitched. But he also gets $0.125 million for each 25 and 30 games finished, and then $0.25 for 35 and 40. Okay, so making him the closer is literally a financial decision as well as a game decision. Yeah, but the thing is, he was never going to be the closer on this team because that's not his role, and they have Ken Giles and then Tapera if Giles is traded. But the game started, or the game's pitched, I think, is significant, but also his 2020 salary is Oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> Why stop at the first year, right? Yeah. So the option increases to $3 million if he throws in 30 to 39 games this year. 5 million with 40 to 49 and 7 million with 50 plus and they and then 8 million with 50 plus and 40 or more games finished but that seems unlikely so basically the blue jays want his option to be worth 7 million dollars i'm dizzy i'll be honest the contract rarely makes me dizzy but that that explanation was just a lot to take in yeah and i was just like i was reading this off a page for if anyone was listening was like i didn't follow any of that I'm sorry because that makes all the sense in the world to me. <laughs> Go to Cott's contracts. It's you know baseball perspectives owns it now, but and you can see the breakdown of this contract because it's bizarre. I can't remember seeing the blue. I mean, it's not that crazy, but I've never seen the Blue Jays do it. No, the Blue Jays have just started getting to, into incentive laden contracts, and I can imagine the negotiation for this contract was a weird series of conversations for both sides. Like, how about? And then someone throws in the idea of the game's finished. You know that had to happen when someone was like, well, I want to squeeze a little bit more out of it. Well, we can't give any more for games pitched. Well, what if we finished games? Like, well, you're not going to be finishing games. But what if I did? <laughs> yeah. Fine. I, mean, I guess this is sort of a necessity when you got someone who's coming off injury. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it helps him build value. But it's almost one of those like, well, what if he wins the American League Divisional Series MVP? <laughs> it's my favorite one. 
Batista had that in his contract. They, they could invent it next year. Screw over some team. <laughs> I want to see that happen. I want to see Boras put that in some clause. Put that clause in some contract. It's like $10 million if he wins the division series MVP. The team's like, ah, sure, why not? And then he, then he just like pushes the league and starts funneling money to the right people. <laughs> <laughs> and then it works out. The odds of that seem excessively long, but it also seems like a Scott Boris kind of maneuver. Okay, I, that yeah. I think is about all we can learn about David Phelps until he actually starts pitching in games and accumulating strange bonuses. Yeah, and just regarding the the uh, escalating contracts and the incentives that the Jays are giving out in these deals now, I think part of it is just that they have more budget flexibility than they did under Anthopoulos. Hmm. Could be. Could be a different... I mean, he had, he had to account for every dollar, right? So he couldn't afford to have a guy go and earn an extra $5 million beyond his, his contract because then he was screwed. Yeah, well, certainly the Jays are not in a tight payroll situation this year, as near as I can figure, or going into next year, unless some really strange stuff happens, as compared to what they've been doing the last, you know, three, four years. Uh, okay, so we did have a bit of an article on Dalton Pompey by Ben Nicholson-Smith. Uh, he talked to Dalton, and Dalton is, as you and I have recently discovered, 26 years old which puts him right in Teoscar Hernandez, Bryce Harper territory. Uh, and he hasn't really had the success of either of those guys. Like he would probably trade with Teoscar Hernandez in a heartbeat at this point. Um, but he is still in the Blue Jays plan so much so that they, they, he and Atkins had a, had a one-on-one. Yeah. And interestingly, I'm not going to, you should read the article. It's by Ben Nicholson Smith. It's on Sportsnet. If you just search for, Dalton Pompey life coach, you'll find it, which is how we found it again for this podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, he talked about his goals for 2019 and how to reach those with Ross Atkins. And look, I mean, I, there's no sense in putting a lot of stock into this in terms of roster decisions, but it does make it at least somewhat plausible that we might be wrong about Dalton Pompey's standing in this organization. It seems like he's buried. You know, they've got McKinney, they've got Grichuk, they've got Teoscar Hernandez, Pilar, and uh, if you want to include Jonathan Davis, who I'd rather have Pompey than Davis. But, you know, there's a lot of guys like that. And it's just been assumed that the next 40 man spot that opens up, which we almost had with the Phelps and Martin thing, Pompey goes. But I don't know if that's true. I, I think the the only thing that we know is is true is is this is the make or break season for Dalton Pompey. I mean, you can't. I don't. I don't think he gets another crack at it if he's if he's not healthy this year. I, I he's clearly demonstrated that he can't be healthy. But if he's healthy and productive, I think you're right. I think that they're the team is ready to buy into him if he can be those two things. Yeah, I mean the talent that he had that made him, you know, a top fifty prospect in the game and excited people to the point where he was called up to be the starting center fielder at 22. It's still there. It's just, he has to show that he can put it to work on the field and turn it into the skills that are required to hit upper level pitching and stay on the field. Yeah. And the, the difficult about base, part about baseball is you get old really, really quickly now. And, yep. and Dalton is for a prospect is an old man. Remarkably. Still younger than Julie Merriweather, but um, <laughs> he's uh, he's out of options, which is going to make things a little more interesting. I don't know if a team would claim Pompey if he went through one on waivers. 
I mean, I think that you you want him to stay healthy, right? Because you, if you trade him on waivers, you got to put him on your roster. Yeah, and I mean, we like you said, we haven't seen him stay healthy for a full season. That's that's one half of the equation, and then the other half of the equation is will he produce? Yeah, I think it's 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 cool that the Blue Jays are are you know not shoving him in a closet somewhere that they're willing to talk to him and that they're you know willing to obviously give him another shot at uh, at approaching this year in the best way possible yeah um which i think speaks to sort of the thing that we were also going to we, we had a question about was was culture as it relates to an organization's you know approach and and philosophy and I'm sorry. Did you actually have the question we got? Because I have. Yeah, it's way too long to read on the air. Uh, this was you know, we, we when we do our Patreon stuff, the extra pods, we ask our patrons what they'd like us to talk about. And George Vay, who we've actually discussed one of his topics before, he asked us to talk about this. It's not really a long enough conversation for an extra pods episode, so we thought we'd do it here. Just this idea that the team might be focusing on specific aspects of culture that they didn't before. And he was asking specifically about competition, which with the catcher situation and Ross Atkins saying that he wants uh, Maurice McGuire and Danny Jansen to be constantly passing each other on the depth chart. Uh, I don't know that that's new necessarily, though. Well, we've certainly come a long way from what people classified as, uh, you know, jerk ball, as we called it when Yunel Escobar was here and some other guys where um, we seem to be taking... The organization seemed to be taking risks on cast-offs who had had conflicts with their organizations in, of one way or another, whether personality or whether uh, contract conflict or, or something else like that, thinking giving them a new home, ergo, say, Colby Rasmus, um, would, would cure them of some of their ills where they could blossom, you know, the, the change of scene kind of thing. We've come a long way from that because clearly the Blue Jays are not pursuing those kind of players at all anymore. Yeah, I, I do think there's a different potentially type of player they're looking for. I mean, when the Jays traded for Josh Donaldson and added Russell Martin and traded for Tulowitzki, it was all about part of it was the leadership and the mentor that they could provide. But I think that Martin is still an example of that more so than say the other two just who who tended to be more lead by example types based on their, uh, their reputations. I mean, I think it was Shapiro. It might've been Atkins, Hammer, which of them even said essentially that Josh Johnson's so advanced that he can't really teach other people. His role. Which obviously that's kind of interesting. So then, but then you get like guys like Curtis Granderson and they were going after CC Sabathia, these similar types of leaders that these, you know, the old veterans who have been around the game. So I don't think that's such a much of a change from the old regime. Except now that we're we're looking at uh, a team this year that appears to be completely bereft of older players, that you know the idea is almost that the kids learn from one another, I guess, or from from the coaching staff more from than from someone else on the field. But Atkins even addressed this though on a radio hit, which we're going to discuss more about later. From we got a question about it. Um, he was talking about how they still have enough veteran leadership or presence. I can't remember the word he used. In this clubhouse with the, you know, he mentioned Kevin Pillar, which is interesting considering the reason he was demoted in his rookie season. But, you know, Kendris Morales, Justin Smoke, these guys have been around, right? And Kendris Morales is apparently a fantastic guy in the clubhouse by all reports. Just not on the way to first base. Zing! <laughs> um, 
So well, that's, just yeah, that's to make this a sh- yeah, sorry, just to make this a shorter thing, I think that culture is something that this organization has valued from the beginning of this regime, but it also goes back to the end of the previous one. Yeah, I think that they learned a lot about culture, and just because the two guys at the top changed, I don't think they forgot about how uh, how they need to manage the personalities on the on the team, young and old, as as a function of what happens on the field, not just as what happens in the clubhouse. I, th- I think they they do know that that clearly shines through. Um, it doesn't necessarily win you games, but I think it could lose you a lot of games if the guys hated one another uh, for for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, thank you once again, George, for the uh, for the topic, because uh, we, we did want to touch on that because it is kind of an interesting thing to watch develop. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Kyle Bodie uh, coming right up after this. We're going to talk to him about throwing baseballs really hard and whether or not the, base- <laughs> the Blue Jays will be doing more of that in the future. We'll be right back. And we are happy to be joined by Kyle Bodie, who is from Driveline Baseball, uh, which is uh, an organization uh, that he uh, is the founder of, um, who works with uh, pitchers. And uh, welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, Kyle. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, a pleasure. Uh, I'm glad you stopped by. Um, so you're, you're really kind of on the cutting edge of a bunch of things uh, to do with, with uh, baseball and <laughs> pitching. So maybe for our listeners' benefit, just sort of go over what it is Driveline um, does uh as a a service yeah i mean the tagline is that we're just uh, data-driven player development and we're trying to bring you know just essentially the same metric movements of player development to bring quantified ways on how to actually get people better so like why why does someone how do you get someone throwing harder how do you develop pitches and players Uh, how do you rehab them from injury how do you do a better job and that's basically um that's what we're just trying to do you know just trying to drive uh Drive the, the limits of performance, uh, testing, and injury rehab, everything, uh, you know, to, to its natural end. So how long yeah. ago did you did you start with that, um, you know, that process? Oh, been working, uh, you know, for about 10 plus years now, but it's been a full-time endeavor for only about half of that at this time, yeah. You know, a lot of the, the public-facing stuff from what you do, especially when it comes to, you know, like Trevor Bowers often talking about the stuff he's done with you and is about not just spin and pitch development, but also velocity training. I mean, that seems to be, obviously, there's a lot more to it. But specifically, I wanted to ask, when it comes to helping people throw harder, how do you sort of marry that and and mitigate the increased risks of injury that come with increased velocity? Now, without giving away trade secrets, obviously, but... Yeah, and it just depends on who it is. You know, like a guy like Trevor has um, really low joint loads and kinetics for his throwing motion, so he can tolerate a lot more throwing and we just do a lot of, a lot of, we just do a lot of customized work here at biomechanics lab uh run by our r&d team like joe marsh and anthony brady uh do uh share basically have the lion's share of the credit um also the athlete results team led by sam briand uh we've driven the major injury rate in gym and the people that are trained here when we follow them for a year uh down from like four percent down to below one percent uh over the past rolling three-year average which has been really great um, and a lot of it is because customizing workloads uh, and just getting better insights on the human body. Um, and so for someone like 
Um, someone like Trevor, he can throw all the time because of his signature and biomechanics report. Uh, and then someone like Matt Boyd, a former Blue Jay, uh, can't really throw all the time because he's actually considerably much better athlete than Trevor. So he has to have a much more customized and lighter throwing load uh, to stay healthy. So it just depends on who they are and their signature in the lab. So, I mean, how much testing is required to get to a point where you can sort of make those determinations about a player? Is that very quick analysis or does it take a while? Yeah, you can get about 80 to 90% of it done within the first, like, a week that you work with a person. Our assessment, pro our assessment process takes about two days, uh, whether it's, bi it's a, you know, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, um, range of motion, uh, pitch design type work. Uh, it just takes about two days. And from that, we can get about 80 to 90% of the value. So it's a service that we offer a lot of the major league teams, uh, and that's uh, we, do, we assess a lot of their athletes. So that's kind of um, what we do, and I know that's why a lot of our employees are being uh, poached <laughs> and moving <laughs> out to other organizations. So I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Well, I, I presume you started out as an independent organization, like <clears throat> completely independent, and and obviously you had an idea about how to do things better. But baseball is a is a very slow, or was I should say, a very slow uh, kind of impenetrable wall of of old school ideas. H how did you start? You know, where where was your first in where you started convincing either players or was it a, a specific team that maybe you could you could actually you know get some real results that you could you could show them? Obviously, you're big on quantifying the results. Um, who who was the first that that said, oh, this this is actually working and we can measure it? Yeah, I was working with individuals. The first individual to train, the first pro individual to try what we were doing was Ryan Buckter, uh, who now is in the big leagues with the A's, and uh, it was great. You know, the, I always joke the first two pro clients I had. Uh, reached the big leagues and it's been downhill since then unfortunately <laughs> so it's been a 100 success rate was apparently unsustainable so it was him and then caleb cotham who is now the big assistant big league pitching coach with the cincinnati reds uh but pitching the big leagues with the yankees and the reds uh and uh then yeah there was those and then trevor bauer was one of the first kind of active big leaguers who engaged with us in 2012 2013 and that's been that relationship's been going on. It's actually why I was late to this podcast. I was talking to Trevor. So sorry about that. But uh, um, yeah, that's kind of how it is. And then the first teams were uh, in. I started working for the Houston Astros in 2013, kind of on the scouting side, not much on player development. Um, I worked there for two and a half years and then moved on uh, to work for a couple other organizations doing player development consulting. And the first big one, I guess, is to answer the question directly, would probably be the Los Angeles Dodgers, which was three years ago in 2016. Uh, working with a lot of the players and rolling out a weighted baseball program that exists today and they call it the gas program and it's been really really successful for them that's been great that's that's really interesting now when you started doing that obviously you had this relationship with the astros as an employee but then the dodgers as a client did you find that there was pushback from other aspects of the industry or was it sort of just everyone slowly caught on and weren't really aware at the beginning Oh no, it's just it's pushback every day, even today. Like it's 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 not a smooth transition. You know, it looks like it from the outside, but uh, no, it's just a constant battle, and you're just like constantly defeating one hurdle after the other. And then from the outside, it looks like a pretty smooth uh, trajectory, but in reality, it's just like constant war. Um, it's funny because uh, a general manager once told me he's like, "You don't have to be such a jerk on Twitter, like <laughs> you've you've won the war." And I said, "That's what you think." Like it's not true though. Like we're constantly battling. Um, regressive coaches inside organizations and regressive college coaches and like the, the the simple fact is the majority of players the majority of coaches like don't don't 
use our stuff. So how could how could we have possibly won the war if that's true? So there's still a lot more work to be done to declare victory, I guess. So you obviously yeah. want to you you want to pick up on stuff that you can point at and say, okay, I, I you you wanted me to to get teach you how to throw harder. I taught you how to throw harder. You wanted me to you know reduce your your uh, your stress on on your body. I I can show you how I'm reducing the stress on your body, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It must be frustrating when you try and bring facts to the table and people just ignore you. Of course. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's, it's just a great, wonderful uh, – it's just wonderful. You know, you just have uh, constant battles between facts versus opinions, and uh, that just sums up baseball in general, you know. But uh, it's it's pretty tough. Um, the biggest thing is, like, you just got to do right by the players, you know. That's the biggest thing that's important to me. So when you have people, like, with the Toronto Blue Jays, the best prospects or one of the best, since you guys are loaded, uh, being, like, a, a Nate Pearson – uh, who trains here and he'll actually be here in five days, four days. And someone like Nate, like the Blue Jays have been great with him. You know, they drafted him. They knew what the situation was and they've supported him and he's been excellent for the, for the Jays. Uh, but that doesn't always happen, unfortunately. And so then that's a tough situation if the player is in a regressive organization and how you handle that can be pretty tough. Now, given how important development is to the health of a franchise, is it somewhat surprising that trying to tackle it in this method has taken so long for even some organizations to accept for me it is this it's like pretty surprising because like once this started getting a little bit of traction in 2013 i just i knew what the logical conclusion was going to be i really did i saw like the end of where player development's going to be and we're not there yet you know we're 10 years away off but i know where this is going um I know that like our organization is going to lead it and it's 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 weird to like know that and have the conviction and talk to GMs and AGMs who like just don't share that conviction, which is fine. You know, it's not their business. But at the end of the day, it is strange to to, to not see like um, the, the level of buy-in is a lot lower organizationally than I would have expected, considering that like a lot of the players, the minor leaguers, the good minor leaguers are using it, depending on where you think Forrest Whitley is, if he's a top five prospect, uh, whatever. You know, he's he's a player that uses weighted balls and has since he was in high school. To he'll be here with Pearson as well. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see. I think people are still fighting the tide. They're trying to. But as evidenced by the coaching hires, things are changing very rapidly. This year is going to be the first. I think this year will be remembered for a long time on how it changed baseball on the player development side. Cool, cool. So I, I will say that you mentioned the hires. Um, I have two names, uh, Dimitri Kokoris and uh, uh, Corey Popham. And uh, I, I have no idea who these guys are or what they did for you. So as a Blue Jays fan and of a Blue Jays podcast, uh, what is it that they're going to bring to the organization that maybe wasn't there before? Or what are they going to focus on that the Blue Jays were already, you know, starting to go into? Yeah, we and it's important to note that we have a really good relationship with the Blue Jays. Um, it's been great. Obviously, there's a lot of ex-Indian front office members who we have a great relationship with Cleveland. So that's continued. Uh, but then down to people like Gil Kim, who's the farm director, um, has been a has been a great contact with us for a long time, and uh, it's been it's been awesome. So, but as far as the coaches go, Dimitri is a friend of mine and has been since 2012. Uh, he he worked here last summer as a part time coach, uh, and then Corey Popham actually trained under me when he was still playing college baseball. And then worked here as an intern for um, a summer, and then worked built his own place, and then was coaching college baseball. Uh, and what they'll bring is, the, I mean, just it's a different perspective, you know. And that's what uh, I think that's what Gill is looking for in a minor league coach. Uh, it's about challenging the surface, you know, just challenging kind of what's on the surface, challenging the status quo. That can be tough, you know. The first guy through the wall always gets bloody, 
as they say. So um, uh, these guys are hopefully the right guys for it. I, I love both of them. Both, you know, if they wanted to, they're certainly welcome to work at Driveline. <laughs> but of course, they're working for <laughs> Toronto now. So uh, I, I respect both of them. Yeah, both both Dimitri and Corey were coaching college when they were hired. But yeah, they both worked here for a considerable length of time. And I, I just sort of when you know you say you mentioned they're going to be dying in the minors, trying to give a different voice. How much value, because obviously you work with current major leaguers, do you think that a role like theirs would have on a big league staff, given that, you know, the day-to-day is very different? Yeah, it's very minimal. You know, but that's it, it's that's kind of not uh, relevant anyway. You know, you don't really want to work. It doesn't matter for the big leaguers, for better or worse. You know, like, they're, a lot of them are going to be immutable. They're not going to change just because it's hard to change. You know, you're making big league money. It's your career. You spend your whole life dreaming of being in the big leagues, and then, wanting to change is tough like uh generally people are only going to change when they face some sort of adversity and that usually means being sent down to the minors or released so trying to work on the big league side of it is kind of um it's nice if you get it like if nate pearson becomes a big leaguer fast then i think that helps because then you can point to someone like nate and say hey this guy throws 100 but he can really pitch and like he's you know his story is a good one left the major division one program to go to a junior college solely because the junior college coach had a good plan for him. You know, Nate is a, definitely a guy that's very process driven. So like that helps. It certainly helped in Los Angeles because their number one prospect was Walker Bueller, who's a trainee, you know, and Walker and I have a very good relationship. And then they had a bunch of organizational guys through the driveline Dodgers velocity program who were basically written off and then ended up becoming very good pitchers who ended up being traded this actual this year and for real talent. And so as a result, you have like these organizational guys who aren't very good, who get a lot better, and then you have your number one prospects who are like bookending it. So that's the best case scenario. So the best case scenario for the Blue Jays would be like Pearson reaches the big leagues either this year or next year, uh, and then a bunch of organizational guys who are written off like develop fairly well under them. And then if that happens, it becomes really hard to ignore that like there's a better way to do this. Cool. That that sounds like like you said you you see the future and that and, and that's uh, part of that future. Uh, you, I've noticed on, on Twitter, like to show off your new toys and your tools and your diagnostics. Um, so why don't you give people the Twitter handles they might follow if uh, if they were interested in following along with this, these developments? Yeah, we're at Driveline Bases on Twitter and then uh, Driveline Baseball on Instagram, where we post a lot about uh, science we've been doing. Uh, it's been it's been fun. We actually found some interesting stuff that we'll be posting in the next couple of weeks about like the laminar, laminar flow and not to bore all your listeners but how the movement of the baseball we've been the first uh we'll be the first people to de- demonstrate that um movement of a baseball is not completely understood and uh did it in like a two hundred thousand dollar science lab in uh, the mountains of utah it was fun sounds- so that's the kind of stuff that we that's the kind of stuff that we tackle sounds absolutely funky all right uh thank you very much once again for joining us kyle and uh hopefully we'll be talking to you maybe when uh nate pearson makes his major league debut and we need to uh, get some insight into how he's doing all that that sounds great. He'll be throwing the hitters here on Monday. He's coming by. It'll be it'll be a blast. So hopefully I'll get to see him in the big leagues this year. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. And we have returned, as, as promised, as always. And since we have returned, we have looked at a list of things that we call your questions. And, uh, and after that, I usually play this thing. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? I'd, 
are any of our questions actually repeat questions this week? Do they have a theme? Uh, there are some people asking on a theme, yes. All right. Hit me with question number one. So the first one, let's just get this one out of the way. We're going to go a little out of order. but let, <laughs> From Mike at Go Sense Go, Bryce. Bryce, 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 Bryce. Can we do his follow-up question? Yeah, and then actually Bryce or Manny. And then Luke at Split Letters said, is there any good reason besides Rogers being cheap for the Jays not to go hard after Harper? So I think what I would first like to add there is Bryce, 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 because I don't know. He seems like better to me. Is that so wrong? No, it's not. I mean, there's an argument to be made. I, I tend to fall on the same side, but he's also just a much better fit. Uh, yes, yes. The uh, the fact that his shortstop third base position seemed to have some young up-and-comers in the Blue Jays system willing to possibly take them over for Machado uh, versus the outfield, which is bereft of a center fielder that we would want to play every day. Yeah, that seems like a better fit to me, too. I mean, Harper shouldn't really be in center, but he's just, he's an outfielder. <laughs> the team's outfield depth chart isn't very good. No. And we, he's left-handed. Hey, that sounds cool. We should, we should try that in the American League East. No, there's no parks in the AL East that are good for left-handed batters. <laughs> Silly thought on my part. Um, <laughs> but the, the, we're back to Luke's question, though. Uh, is there any good reason, besides Rogers being cheap for the Jays, to not go hard after Harper? Oof. Uh, a good reason? I mean, I guess the reason that, that they would have is just that they don't want to throw money at, you know, lock up long-term money before they see where these guys are in the development curve, which I guess is a pretty good reason, but I don't think it's a good enough reason. I think they should absolutely be going hard after Harper. Yeah, and I mean... I think I think as as fans, it is not our duty to be good or bad with the team's money or consider their their payroll whatever's because ultimately as as this topic is going to come up during the offseason i'm sure before we get to spring training uh teams all of them are way too cheap right now because they are handing away a smaller and smaller portion of their revenue to the players who are the reason that they have the revenue in the first place so you know what no there's no good reason it's the same reason all i mean the yankees there's been a great discussion of this just briefly that the yankees were trying to stay under the luxury tax of 189 so they could go and spend big this year and although they haven't technically spent big uh yet it's clear that they're not just throwing money around because the luxury tax is lower they're just using it as a soft cap again and it's yeah. getting a bit ridiculous but but getting back to the blue jays specifically i mean you're talking about like it's not our job to worry about ownership and spending money. Even taking that into consideration, though, the Blue Jays have no real money on their books for next year. I mean, I think they have the only contract they have on their Tulo. books next year is Tulo and Lourdes Gurriel. I think those are the only two guys. Yeah. And Lourdes Gurriel makes like, you know, $3 million. So I, I there's a financial aspect to it that makes sense. Like you could front load a deal to offset so that you have, you know, while you have lower costs with your prospects, you're paying more of Bryce's salary so that when you have rising other costs, his is mitigating it. But also he's age wise. He just fits it. He's cheap. He's younger than Teoscar Hernandez oh, by yeah. day, but still, <laughs> even yeah. though he's like, yeah, he's, he's, he's so much more valuable than Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, then you should be paying him for the, that commensurate value, right? Right. And, he, and he's a good fit, like you said. All right. So that's the Bryce Manny 
theme, I think. Um, so Brian has a good uh, question at BJ Arsenal 84. Should the MLB allow aluminum bats in the home run derby? Imagine the distance on those home runs. And you'd probably have to take those little leaguers off the field since a line drive would probably knock one out. Okay, second part first. Those kids should be off the field now. <laughs> they knock one another out. But also it's like, you know, those I, I don't know how a ball hasn't given a kid a concussion. I mean, like if a guy just tops one a little bit and hits a screaming liner into the outfield, <laughs> like those kids ain't catching it. I think we're waiting for the one time when some like 13 and a half year old out there, like the oldest kid out there parks himself by the fence and manages to rob a home run. It did happen. An actual up over the fence home run robbery. Yes. Okay. Then get him <laughs> the off kid, the field. <laughs> the, the kid robbed one and they had to award the home run. That was a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I watched them a lot, and I must have missed that. So that was probably somewhere in hour three and a half of the home run derby, uh, where I had, I had lost my focus because of the the chip crumbs, uh, you know, covering all of my body that I was trying to track down. Uh. <laughs> but to the first part of this question, no, they should not. They had one uh, high school one a few years back. Jacob Gatewood was hitting like five hundred foot bombs with a metal bat. Major leaguers with metal bats would kill people, and in the stands, I mean, the, the balls would be getting in there so fast that it would be dangerous. Yeah, this is this is a, a group of guys who can with with you know, a reasonable opportunity hit the ball 120 miles an hour with a wood bat. That's a scary thing to add even 10 miles an hour to that, right? It's Yeah, I I just it would be just so dangerous and there's no point. I mean, <laughs> they hit massive bombs with wood. Yeah, they're doing fine with with 20 or 30 in a, you know, a couple rounds. It's like 30 and also, Yeah. Yeah, and also, I think it would be less impressive, even if it didn't hurt someone. It's like, yeah, say, okay, you hit 520-foot home run, but with metal, you know? I'd much rather see 487 with a wood bat. You just don't want to hear, dink, dink. No. <laughs> For I like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> the crack of the bat is where it's at. Uh, so Gideon Turk, our old friend, um, has posted a link to... Uh, Ross Atkins interview and he said what do you make of Atkins comments the last few minutes of this uh, shot on TSN radio about the upper minors pitching they've assembled and how one or two of them will develop into top of the rotation guys and then also who has the best odds of doing that out of the bunch uh, interesting that uh, did Kyle say this before we actually turned the mic on or, or did he say it after we did that that the Blue Jays are in fact loaded with talent I think that was on the radio. I think we got that on air. Yeah. So uh, that that grabbed my attention because not not everybody's the same point on the Blue Jays system in terms of how impressive it is. But uh, Kyle didn't seem to be concerned at all with the amount of talent that they had amassed. So is there a real uh, diamond in the rough here? Well, first off, so just a quote. Atkins said it was talking about the upper minors depth, especially. And he's saying it's like we've got 20 guys who are on double A AA or triple A who you know are of quality of some level. And that he thinks that, you know, a bunch of them will turn into mid-rotation starters and two or three of them will turn into top of the rotation starters. I think that there is probably some, you know, playing fast and loose with the terms there because, you know, the odds of any pitcher becoming a top of the rotation starter are not very good. So saying two or three out of a group are going to do it is it's not likely. Considering the Blue Jays currently have zero reliable top of the rotation starters. Yeah. But, I mean, like Nate Pearson, who Kyle Bode talked about, is obviously the number one and far and away best chance of anybody reaching that elite level ceiling. I mean, he throws 104. 
right? And, That's and apparently knows a little bit about how to pitch. Right, and you know, if you can do that, you're you're a little step ahead of everybody else. Well, you're um, you're Noah yeah. Syndergaard if that's who you really are, right? Exactly, and you know, and staying healthy, which Noah Syndergaard's problem too. But you know, there are other guys who are have upside. I mean, Sean Reed Foley has upside, and you know, you could say that Hector Perez has upside. But you know, I'd say that the odds are that none of the upper minors guys is going to reach that highest level other than maybe Pearson. I mean, you could say lower guys like Pardino or Eve Kloffenstein even, but that's because they haven't had enough time to show whether they can or can't do it. So you, you think he's pumping the tires on his or- own organization maybe a little bit? Well, like I said, I just think he's just, you know, his top of the rotation guy might be like, like, his, know, impact, useful... like his impact bat from last year. Oh, let's not go into that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it might be he might be saying like, you know, what they've gotten out of Marcus Stroman to this point in his career. I would not call that a top of the rotation pitcher, but that might be his definition. Yeah, it's not. It wouldn't be an unfair way to use that term, but it wouldn't be the way we might use that term in our our day to day discussion. There, there yeah. I, yeah, there's no Felix Hernandez waiting in the wings here uh, in the upper minors. No. I, I, now, do you th- do you think though that he's he is talking reasonably about maybe finding a couple, if he believes that there's that many guys about finding one or two diamonds in the rough in terms of of finding someone with the consistency of a of a Marcus Stroman who who through development gets better? I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, absolutely, there could be that, I and mean, and some of the guys they've added, like Trent Thornton, they seem extremely high on the guy they got for Aledmus Diaz, who apparently has this extremely high spin curveball and a good fastball and. You know, Julian Merriweather had, you know, he was a 26 year old before getting Tommy John surgery and was still appearing on prospects lists, which doesn't even happen when you're 26. So there's guys with stuff and there's guys who could <laughs> develop stuff. So it could happen. I just want to clarify for everyone did both guys and stuff have a capital in that sentence? No, just stuff. Just stuff. So they were just guys. Not guys, <laughs> but they had. I really got to stop using stuff. these terms. But, no, but there are pitchers who have elite level stuff, or at least some aspect of it that seems like if it's honed, it could be really good. Like David Paulino, for example, who they also got for Osuna. You know, there there's talent, but there's also a lot of risk. Fair enough. All right, so uh, we haven't been nearly silly enough this podcast, I don't think. Uh, so it's it's probably time to, to, to we are out of questions, right? I read over them all. No, we're not. We we're got, not. We got two more. We, oh, no. yeah. I did not refresh. One must refresh the window, Greg. Oh, there it is. Noel. Noel Moxon at the Mox Ball. Uh, first question: Who's traded next? That's the. That's a weird question. Not Russell Martin. Uh, no. Okay, who's the oldest guy? Is it Kevin Pillar or Justin Smoke? It's Morales, Mar- Mar- and I don't think. Nope. <laughs> I- I'd say the next guy to get traded is a pitcher. Uh, I don't know who, but a pitcher of some kind. I'm going to go Whether out on Ken Lam- Giles, or I'm going to say it's uh, Marcus Stroman. Okay. For cultural, I think it's a good bet for cultural reasons. Like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even without that, but like if you said who's the next guy to get traded, dur- and then it's going to be during the season, it's going to be Ken Giles and Stroman. I think are the two far and away leaders. Fair enough. And uh, Noah was was big on the questions once he saw the tweet. He asked, who is your favorite player incoming this year to make the greatest impact not named Vlad? One pitcher or, and position player, or maybe just one one of each between us? I don't know. Sure, you go first. 
Um, incoming this year, that's that's a tough call because I don't know who really will be incoming this year. Uh, I like Ryan Barucki, I think. Uh, I'd like to see a full year out of him. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm excited, but that would be interesting. And and probably Danny Jansen. Yeah, I mean, that, those are, I think, probably the best. But since you, I'll, I'll stick with Jansen because I'm right there with you on him. And I will say Brandon Drury. Yeah, well, somebody's got to man third base until May 1st, right? Or what? But I, I think he's good, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he'll play second once, you know, because Travis is not looking like much right now. But I think Brandon Drury is a very good player. I wanted the Blue Jays to trade for Brandon Drury last year, and I was upset when he went to the Yankees. So I think he's a decent player. I just thought it was weird that they traded for him because he didn't fit the roster. But, well, I, I'm, I think people will be pleasantly surprised with him. Cool. All right. Those now some... we can be silly. Okay, absolutely. So James uh james g at james and to who also provided the audio for uh the russell martin clip earlier i failed to give credit on there um so thank you james for recording that for posterity for us uh he came up with a bot i don't know where he got this idea but it is certainly one of the stranger bot ideas i've ever had that if you <laughs> tweet it at his account um with with the appropriate hashtag no, it wasn't even a hashtag. Oh, you just wrote just, my Blue Jays. My Blue Jays, sorry. With spaces uh, and everything. Uh, it, would, it will tweet back at you two randomly selected uh, one pitcher, one catcher, Blue Jays seasons. Uh, pitcher and hitter. Did I say pitcher and catcher? My God. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Pitcher and hitter, uh, Blue Jays seasons for you to peruse that, that can be yours and yours alone. Um, I don't know what it means, really, but I... They are you. You are represented by these seasons. I am clearly uh, identified now forever by Dave Steve's 1988, a year in which he was 16-8 and eight with a 304 ERA and threw 207 innings with eight complete games, his most complete games in the late 80s after his, you know, his real high point. And 1998, Carlos Delgado... Uh, a year in which saw him, wow, 620 plate appearances. Carlos was busy. Uh, he did. He only hit 292, 385 with 38 home runs, 115 batted in, one triple. <laughs> I know we're going to go in this in depth. So I ended up with 1987 Jimmy Key, which that was Key's best season by far. To, led the league in the RA through 260 innings. Got no love from anybody other than the Toronto people. <laughs> He did finish second in Cy Young voting. Oh, but he did that year. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Key was my first ever favorite player, so this was kind of fun for me. <laughs> uh, I must admit that of all the players, of all the veterans, I should say, on the World Series winning teams, Jimmy Key was my favorite pitcher by far, way by far. I just, I was so sad when Jimmy Key left. So I'm right, I'm right there with you. Who's your? And just- so I got 1998, like second or third tour, depending on you count, third tour of duty, Tony Fernandez, which you know, was a good year. He came back and was like the third baseman who would fall down on pitches that were nowhere near him, but pretend they hit him. And yeah, he hit, he hit 320, 387 on base and a 459 slugging. I, think, I want to talk about. Sorry. Tony sorry, was amazing in just the fact that he kept coming back, reinvented Tony Fernandez. And it was like, I, I don't even understand how you're back in Toronto, but sure, let's go for it again. I, I the, the Tony Fernandez go round was a strange thing. He really was, but uh, well, you're talking about you're sad when Key left, right? Yes. 
My favorite Blue Jay at the time, in 1992, was Jimmy Key. My favorite non-Blue Jay was David Cohn. Wow, that and then they worked. traded for David Cohn. <laughs> and then they both left in the offseason. Truly, 1993 was a high point for you in so many ways. Yeah. And then 1994 was the ultimate low point because there was the strike. And then one, two in Cy Young voting were Cohn and Key on the Royals and the, and the Yankees, respectively. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a dark hour for you. I'm surprised you didn't quit. It was like yeah. they tore your heart out. Turfbot the, also has a um Yeah. They 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 did they got theirs as well. We we got ours, I should say. Nine, 2009 Roy Halliday, which how do we not get it? We gotta get a holiday, right? Yes, absolutely. And 87 Fernandez. The reason I wanted to mention this specifically is because the turf pod scored higher in the baseball reference war than either of we did, which makes sense. Yeah, well, it's like the, the sum is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really greater than the sum, but it's the whole is just better than us individually. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. I walk around during yeah. the day and I'm like, you know, this would be better if Josh was here to explain it. <laughs> and for me, it's this would be way better if Greg were here to tell me what to talk about. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right, enough with the loving. I think we have we have come <laughs> to the end of another artificial turf wars podcast. So that is to say that you were Josh Housem at Joshua Housem. I was Greg Wazowski at Coolhead 2010. Our guest was Kyle Bodie uh, at Driveline Bases, and uh, this has been. Artificial Turf Wars episode number 127, and we'll talk at you in a couple weeks.